In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at the Bethesda pool. Now this man was paralyzed, forget this, 38 years. And he believed that he can only be healed if the waters in the pool were stirred and then he was the first one to jump in. So what is this pool all about? Well, in Aramaic, Bethesda means house of mercy. And according to John 5, it was located in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. Now this puts the pool outside of the city walls, just north of the temple. Now its proximity to the temple means that it actually could have been something called a mikvah. And this is a pool that is used for ceremonial washings. Now the pool was discovered in the late 1800s, so up until then, well, some scholars question the historical accuracy of the Bible, especially because John says that the pool had five shaded colonnades or porticos. So how could this be? What are there like five sides to the pool? How does this work? Well, the archeological discovery in the late 1800s and well, especially the excavation in 1964 showed that not only was this pool real, but it's totally possible to have the five colonnades. See, it was a rectangle with a dam in the middle, making it five walls to have five shaded colonnades. Now the reason for this is because Bethesda was actually two pools connected. The first or the northern pool goes all the way back to probably the 8th century BC whenever they built a dam to create a reservoir. Then the second or the southern pool was added later and then the dam was in the middle and it could be lowered to bring the water from the northern pole from the northern pool to refill the southern pool. Now Jesus' miracle here destroys any sort of superstition and proves that it's only through Jesus that we can experience a healing. So there you go. A little bit about the Bethesda pool, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, we pray, Lord, I, I pray that it was one that allowed us to reconnect with family, allowed us to, to work on family issues, to, to just celebrate the gift that God has given us with one another. Pray it was also a good time with friends, and if you're ASU, you got another win under your belt, so good. Praise be to God for that. And Father, we just ask that you would join us tonight, that you would be with us as we go through John, that you would share with us how it applies to our life, that you'd give us wisdom as we go through life, and that you'd also remind us that you love us, that you got us, and that we're yours. And we pray that tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I just want to give a, a thanksgiving for Mike and, and, and all the stuff he finds with Historical Minute. That is awesome stuff. Uh, I learn a ton of stuff when he goes through that stuff, and so I hope you guys are too. We're picking up today in chapter 3 of John, uh, beginning, I'm actually going to begin in um, verse 18. Actually, I'm not going to begin there. I'm going to begin in, we're going to begin in chapter 4, <laughs> beginning with verse 21. And, and we, he's kind of rehearsing a little bit of what we talked about last week. The woman at the well, right? And, and this is just the ending part of it. But it says, they're in the midst of this conversation about who Jesus is and what's going on and all those kind of stuff. So I'm going to pick up in verse 20. He says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is the woman talking to Jesus. Worshipped on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you come to or will you worship the Father. You will, you will worship what you do. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I was trying to think of a way to contemporize that just a little bit to give us a feel for this. We live in a very postmodern world where we're very, I don't know, slow to say this is, this is true and this is not true kind of thing. And so I was trying to think of an example where maybe there's a, a portion or a, a religion that holds on to part of Scripture, right? But then it has the idolatrous peace component as well. And just for sake of argument, I'm going to use the, the Mormons today as an example of that. Because in their teachings, they hold to the Bible as a secondary source. The whole Bible, right? The King James Version. It's, it's part of their teachings. It's part of what they hold dear. It's a secondary source, though, that they view through the lens of the Book of Mormon, which would be the idolatrous piece. Now, as they do that, they change God's truth to kind of fit their narrative, if that makes sense. All idolatry is worshiping of something, and you, whether it's another religion, whether it's a lifestyle, whether it's another sin that you're holding on to, sometimes when you hold on to that or love that more, you always view Scripture through that lens. And so, as you're thinking about that, all right, so is a half-truth truth? Somebody tells you a half-truth, do you feel good about it? No, because it's a lie, right? And so what tends to happen in our world to cling or hold on to these idolatrous things is we tend to take parts of the truth to buffet up our lie so that we feel better about it, right? And whether it's the Mormons or, or whether it's, it, it's, it's holding on to a lifestyle, by holding on to the half-truth, it gives us this idea of worship, right? Or this idea of truth but we skew it to fit our fancy. Even more so, there's churches all across our country today that call themselves still churches, but they've abandoned God's truth, again, to fit their narrative. Now, again, I'll ask you, is a half-truth truth? No. And so as they change the narrative of scriptures, they change the truth of scripture to fit their view of God, they change who God is in every way, and they start worshiping something that is not the true God. Now, in that context, listen again to these words. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation comes, I guess, if you can contemporize it, through Jesus, through his truth and his word. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will not worship the Father in spirit, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking just such people to worship him. One of the things that is true is it doesn't matter where you're worshiping God. You can worship God on a mountaintop. You can worship God in a church. You can worship God uh, on the side of a, on a beach, wherever it is. But what makes up the church? God's truth, God's word, and his sacraments. Wherever God's truth, his word is, and sacraments, there is the church. That's it. And so if you have God's truth, you know you're worshiping with him and that he is present with you, speaking to you through his word in powerful ways. We worship God in spirit because he does not have to reside like a human person in any one place. We worship him in his spirit, but it's important that we worship him as he is, as he has revealed himself in scripture, in truth. Which just means this. Christianity isn't one of the religions of the world. It is the religion of the world because it's the only one that holds on to this. And it's the only place in all the world that we find out what Jesus did for us. He died for our sins because it's our sins that alienate us from God and we need that forgiveness and he's the only person in all of history who offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for those sins. Jesus is just saying, there's coming a day, guys, where you don't have to worship on the mountain or in the temple. Both of those are going to be destroyed in AD 70 anyway, so you're not going to be able to worship there. But you're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. 
and wherever my truth is, you're gonna find me. Ultimately, we have to come to a place in life where we say, this is the rock on which we're gonna stand. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his revealed word. And it's gonna give us that paradigm or that perspective of which we view the whole world. Remember one time I was talking to my cousin and she was, she's kind of a, oh, I'll call her an agnostic. She hasn't been to church much in my life. She was the one when my grandma was praying for her mom, my aunt, for all those years. And so they didn't go to church and she was asking me different questions. And, and just as a way of contextualizing it a little bit for her, I said, you know, you have to understand my worldview is dictated on the Bible being true. Okay, let me just start there. That's the way I view the world because that's the truth that I believe in with all my heart. And as such, if you can accept that as my worldview, this is what scripture says. And this is what scripture tells us. And this is what scripture means. And I was able to go into a whole different thing in a way that, I don't know, kept her ears open in a powerful way. She lives in San Francisco. So powerful way, right, to hear what, what, what God was saying. And it moved her and it touched her in a cool way. And, and Anyway, but, but the reality is we have to hold on to truth. Our world is getting screwy. I'll just say it that way, right? It's getting weird. It's, it, it's, it's embracing all these relative stuff that have no basis on anything that is true or real. And yet they're speaking as it, I guess if you shout loud enough, that's the new truth, right? But there's still something ultimately we can stand on that we can know without a doubt is true always. There is an ultimate truth in our world and it is scripture. It is Christ. And if you embrace that, so many of the things in life become simpler, or at least you begin to get a perspective for what's going on in life and how things are happening and who's involved in terms of Satan trying to mess everything up, right? You get a perspective that is healthy as you view the world. So Jesus is talking about those things, and the woman continues and said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, guess what? I who speak to you am he. In fact, in the original language, it says, I am the one who speaks to you. Reference to Yahweh himself, I am. And you can just see her mind going, right? Mind blown. Uh, that makes sense. You seem to know a lot of stuff. And she puts her faith in him at that moment. It's extraordinary. It's powerful. And then the story continues. Somebody just came to faith in Jesus. They're going to be in heaven one day. Jesus has got a hold of them, and the disciples come back, and they marvel that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Remember last week, there was a rabbinical tradition, right, where it was in, that just stated you were not allowed to talk to a woman on the street, not even your own wife. It went on to say, at best, it's a waste of your time, and at worst, it's keeping you from being in the Torah, different time, right? Just a different way of looking at things. And here he was not just talking to a woman, but a Samaritan woman. The Jews already viewed them as less than, right? As people who were getting it wrong, as people who were spreading heresy, as people who were worshiping idol idolatry and calling it worship in God. They were just doing all sorts of damage and they just despised them as a result. No reason, no excuse in God's word ever to despise a group, but these people did. So now he's not just talking to a woman, he was talking in the public, in the street, but a Samaritan woman, and that's what they got caught up on. Not seeing she just came to faith in Jesus, not just seeing the miracle that was done, but Jesus did. So the woman left her jar of water and went away into the town and said to the people, before I get to that part, notice she left her jar of water. What did she go there for? Water. And then Jesus started confusing her and talking to her about living water. What did she leave with? 
living water. It's a little piece there, but it's, it's extraordinary, right? So he goes on and says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So he saved this girl. She's going to heaven now. Every, I mean, she's just overblown. She's so excited. She went and told everybody she knows. The whole town moved by what she's saying. Remember, she's an outcast, but she is going everywhere telling people, I think I just met the Messiah. You got to come check this out. And they're coming. Disciples are still caught up in, why were you talking to the woman? Are you hungry? I mean, they're just missing the whole thing, right? So meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? I mean, what's going on? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus' whole mission, whole reason he came was to create believers in him so that they might receive the forgiveness, be reconciled with God, get to spend eternity in heaven. He'd just been in, Israel, in Jerusalem, right? And done miracles. And man, it was tough sledding getting anybody to buy into him as the Savior, right? Some saw him obviously as a miracle worker. Some saw him as a healer, but maybe some as a prophet. And somebody, a lot of people knew there was something different about him. It says some people put their faith in him. But he goes to the Samaritan village, which he's not supposed to go through. And he brings a gal to faith, and he knows. I mean, the whole town's coming. They're coming, and they're going to come to faith too. I mean, we're doing a huge miracle, a huge revival here today. Tons of people are going to find out who Jesus is. They're going to put their faith in Jesus. They're going to be in heaven for eternity. This is exciting news. This is as good as it gets. And so he's trying to share this with the disciples, trying to open their mind, right? Part of Jesus' role with them is trying to, to blow out the sides of the box that they put them in. And so he's sharing with them, hey, look, this is what gets me excited, Right? There's a food that you know nothing about, right? but that's what's feeding me, and it's, the, it's bringing people to faith in me. So, that, so my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so do, do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that all the fields are white for harvest. So you have to understand the, the disciples, they believe in him as the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to write all things. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. That's what they believe. So they're waiting for that event, and everybody's going to come to faith in him, right? Because he's going to be king. He's going to rule over all. Everybody's going to put their faith in him. Jesus is saying, we don't have to wait. I want to tell you right now, something cool is going to happen. It's going to blow you away. Right now, people are going to be coming to the faith. The fields are ripe with harvest. This is exciting. And just as he's finishing this, you've got to imagine one by one, people from the town start showing up right? They're ripe for the harvest, and he continues. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. So he's saying, hey, look, guys, I'm calling you to be fishermen, right? Fishers of man, I'm calling you to reap people for the kingdom. I want them to come to know me. I want them to put their faith in me. I want them to be in heaven as a result. Your mission is to reap. I want you to realize that what's been happening behind the scenes all this time. I've been working on them with my word, right? With the Torah, with the whole of the Old Testament. I've been working on them with their Pharisee teachers, with their preachers, with everybody who's taught them about the word from the beginning until you get to be with them. John the Baptist has been sent, by the way, right? He's been telling people, pointing people toward me this whole time. They're getting ready. The field is ripe for the harvest. All you guys gotta do is go. 
I was thinking of an example of that. I mentioned it earlier. I only have so many stories, so these are covered up again. But my grandma prayed for my aunt for 30 years. She left the church when she was 18. Didn't want anything to do with the church. But my grandma, she kept sewing. And I want you to use that picture, right? Day after day, week after week, year after year. She'd just keep sending her portals of prayer. She'd keep t- t- asking her if she went to church. She'd keep sending her articles about different things. She'd keep on encouraging, keep on asking. My grandma doesn't always have tax, so she didn't always do it right. But she kept on going, right? Kept on doing her thing for 30 years and nothing. Then one day, my aunt goes to an art festival, meets a Christian gal. They become friends and gives her life over to Christ, all seemingly within an afternoon, right? Now, is my grandma upset? No, <laughs> like score, touchdown. I mean, we, my daughter just came back to the Lord. My daughter's gonna be in heaven. She's overjoyed. She cannot believe it, right? We're the one who sows and the one who reaps rejoice together. And, and I want you to be encouraged by that. I know sometimes sharing our faith is hard, especially in a world that... <sighs> doesn't hold even to his truth, to his word at all, a world that sometimes is mad at him, sometimes doesn't see the relevance of him. I, I get it. But if you love these people, and God calls us again to extend that radius of that, that, that amount of people that we truly love, if we truly love these people and we want them in heaven, we gotta keep trying. We gotta keep sowing day after day, week after week, year after year, just trusting somehow, some way that God might get a hold of them and somebody might in an afternoon Reap them to faith, right? Bring them to faith. And we just know that we gotta keep tending that little seed, right? Over and over and over so that when they're ready, God's gonna bring them home. I'll give you an example of that. Um, and so I, I want you to keep that perseverance and keep that trying. But I also want you to talk to you in terms of the reaper. It's important, and not the reaper, but reaper of souls, right? Um, it's important for us to keep on talking about Jesus, keep on entering into these conversations, keep on taking the opportunities that God gives us to bring people to faith. Now, not all of you have heard this, but a lot of you have. So one of the things about me is I used to fly a lot. And when I'm on a flight, I just hate talking to people. I know that's weird as a pastor. You think, oh, you should love it. But I feel trapped. I don't know. I just, I don't like those kind of things. And so routinely during this period of time, I would bring my Walkman. That was back when there was Walkmans, right? And I would put my headphones on and I would do that as early as I could in the flight. Just perchance the person next to me wants to, to get chatty, right? And I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying this is your broken pastor talking to you, okay? So the reality is, so I'm getting on this flight and the guy next to me, man, he's, he's already talking to me before the, the flight attendant gets to her thing. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's really, you know, kind of chit-chatting. And, but as soon as I could, because the lady started talking and he stopped, I put the headphones on and I kind of closed my eyes and I kind of settled back and got ready for the flight. Flight took off. Everything was going great. About two minutes into the flight, though, my batteries went dead. And I looked over at him and he was just looking at me. So I, I, I kind of sat there for about 10 minutes, literally 10 minutes, trying to think of what to do. And I'm a pastor at this point, so I was thinking, well, I got my Bible with me, right? So I could pull that out and do my devotion. And if he's a Christian, he'll know I'm doing my devotion, and he'll, he'll respect that and leave me alone. And if he's not a Christian, he'll probably be freaked out, won't want to talk to me anyway. So this is genius. So I pull out my Bible, and I start reading, and he looks at me, and he says, oh, are you, I used to be a Christian. And something God did, he wouldn't let me let that go. And we got into a conversation. Two and a half later, hours later, we're still talking. During that period of time, he gave his life to Christ. 
He asked if I knew any, uh, any churches in Milwaukee, and just to show you how weird this was, I had just been to a wedding in Milwaukee. I knew where two really good Lutheran churches were, and I just happened to know the names, so I shared the names with them. A month and a half later, I get a letter, right, where this guy writes me and says, I, I want to thank you, and I just joined this church today, one of the churches I had recommended. Sometimes you sow for it seems like years, and sometimes even when you're resistant, like I was that day, God can use you in a two and a half hour moment to bring someone to Christ and to allow them to experience eternity forever. And was I doing all the sowing that got that guy up to that point? No. I just simply opened my mouth and we got into this amazing conversation and he gave his life to Jesus. I can't encourage you enough. You know our world is getting more and more broken. You know our world is walking away from him. And you know that Jesus is the answer to everything that's going on in the world. You know the top three issues, mental issues today? Anxiety, taking over number one. Depression and loneliness, which are kind of linked, right? You come to a church, you don't have to be lonely anymore. Plus you've got God who walks with you all the time. A God that can give you his promises, his truth versus the lies you're holding on to that's keeping you in depression. He can help you go through and deal with life in a different way because you can give to him your worries and he can give to you his peace. Jesus is the answer to all these things that our world is struggling with. And it's not surprising that our world is dealing with them in increasing fashions as they, were, as they turn away from Christ. I shared this this morning. I was talking to my sis who's a counselor and, and she's done a lot of work with people who are suicidal and she says, I haven't lost one yet, which is great, right? I mean, she's been doing this a long time. And, and I said, well, do you, and I'm just asking questions. I said, do you find that, that, I mean, can you bring in Jesus to it? I mean, can you bring in the faith? And she goes, well, if they talk about it. But she goes, the reality is, is if they have Jesus, they have hope. And if they have hope, they're very seldomly suicidal. Does that make sense? Not that you can't struggle with that as a Christian, but just in her experience, very few people who have that hope are going down that pathway. Jesus is the answer. So I want to encourage you with everything that I have to keep on taking those risks. And if you're sowing with people you love, to keep on sowing. Remember, it's truth and love. Always truth and love. You've got to do it in a way that they hear. If you're doing it in a way that's judgmental or that they don't hear, you're, you're not going to accomplish anything. But you do it in a way that is loving and, and that is whole point is I want you to hear what it is that Jesus says. Now, I want you to wrestle with it, but I want you to know this comes from a place of love, that I care for you, that I love you, that I just want you in heaven one day. One of my buddies, Mike, or my buddy Mike, that I've had all these conversations with over the years, one time I just said, hey, you know why I share all this stuff with you, right? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you want me to be in heaven? You don't want me to go to hell? I said, well, okay, we're on the same page. That's why I keep doing it, right? I love you and I want you in heaven. That's why I keep going. And, and if that can be the takeaway from your conversations, then praise be to God. And then my other encouragement is keep on talking because you don't know when it is that you'll get to be the reaper in a good way, right? Where you, where you share with people Jesus. All right, moving on. So he's having this conversation with his disciples. He's trying to expand some of the stuff that I just talked about. And then it says this in verse... Uh, 30 says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me all that I ever did so when the Samaritans came to him they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word and they said to the woman it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world two days with Jesus and there's not a doubt of their minds 
that Jesus came to save them so that they could be with him forever. After the two days he departed for Galilee, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now I'll explain that in a second. Here's a question. Why did the, peop- why did the people listen to the woman? She was a woman. Well, that's a great question. She was in, not only that, she was an outcast in the community. She had been married five times. She was living with another guy. The whole reason she was probably there early in the day was to avoid contact with the other woman and the judgmental stares and the and un- discomfort that would come from being judged. <laughs> but this gal was a little bit different when she came to the town and she started sharing with everybody about Jesus. Something had clearly happened to her. She was filled with a joy they had never seen. She was promoting something she would never talk about. She had met the Messiah. And they were so intrigued by that that they had to come and see. It even said that some believed just on her testimony. How would he know? This was a Jew. How could he? But then they came in mass. And one after another after another put their faith in Jesus. It was incredible. It was powerful. And so you could postulate a whole bunch of reasons why they might have listened, but I just think it is because it was so different than her normal. She wasn't trying to hide. She was out there and she was talking about stuff she never talks about. Got their attention and they came. Now it says some curious things in verse 43 that I just read. They departed for Galilee. Galilee was kind of his hometown. It's where Cana was, where he did his first miracle, and clearly he and his mom and family knew people there. Uh, Nazareth is up in Galilee area, so this is kind of his home area. It's back in Jerusalem, or it's back in, in, in Judea. Um, it's back near where he grew up. And it says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, and then right after that it goes on to say that the Galileans welcomed him with open arms, right? So it's kind of a, a little bit of a confusion there. So they'd been, they'd been at the feast just a little bit earlier. They'd seen him in Jerusalem. They'd seen him do all these miracles, and they were pretty moved by it. He came home kind of a hometown celebrity. Where did you learn how to do these miracles? Where did you learn how to heal people? They were pretty excited about it. They wanted to experience healings of themselves. They wanted him to do extraordinary things. They weren't necessarily concerned in who he claimed to be because he grew up there. They were interested in seeing the works, the tricks that he could do. And that's kind of borne out over and over as we go through these next few chapters. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he did the first miracle the, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. You hear somebody can heal, and modern medicine hasn't worked. And you watch your kid, and he just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and you feel helpless, and you feel scared, and there's nothing you could do. But at the feast, Jesus had healed a whole bunch of people, and you think, maybe, maybe there's a shot. And so he runs down, and he asks Jesus, Jesus, can you heal my son? Seems like compassion would be due at that point. But Jesus speaking to the crowd, again, kind of explaining some of what I just said a little bit earlier. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Got to imagine that ever since he got there, he was just bombarded by requests to do this or do that or do whatever. And even in his response to this official, who he clearly saw 
desperately wanted Jesus to do something, desperately was hoping and trusting that Jesus would do something, trusting he was who he thought he was. Jesus didn't wave his hands. He didn't put his hand on the child. He almost just like this says, you can go, your child's healed. No fanfare, nothing more than just words so that the other people couldn't get excited. But this official extraordinarily he said, or Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And this man, he says, believed with the, the word that Jesus had spoke to him and went on his way. You're expecting him to come to your house. You're expecting him to lay hands on your child. You're expecting him to show some kind of concern, something, right? And he just says, you can go, your son's healed. And just amazingly, this guy says, okay. I mean, that's where he is. He's, Jesus said he'd be healed. He's healed other people. This is my... I've got to trust this. I, when, when, uh, my oldest daughter, she had a brain tumor when she was in kindergarten. And, you know, we went through the whole thing, and it was, I mean, it, it was all in the space of two weeks, and it was pretty overwhelming. But there's a point in there where, where the doctor says it looks pretty highly cancerous, so even if we get it out, there's probably going to be a lot of radiation. And, and, and our hope is that we can get it out without any permanent damage to their ability to move and different things like that. And I just, all I could do at that point is just pray and trust that God had her. I, I wasn't strong enough even go to the other side of thinking, well, and I know you give me the strength if it goes a different way. I, I couldn't even go there. I was just, God healed my kid. And, and I just kept going back to that again and again and again. And every time a doubt would come into my mind, I'd fight that doubt. And I'd say, all I, I can just handle this right now. And if that gives you a picture, I'm sure that's where this dad is, right? He's, he's watching his little kid struggle. He's going to die. He, he can't, there's nothing he can do. And Jesus said, I could go and he'd be healed. See, faith is an action word, right? It's not just a mental ascent. It's not just knowing things. It's action. And so he put into action his little faith, right? And he started walking home, hoping with all his heart that God had done something powerful, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when it began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. It wasn't a quick turnaround, was it? Been walking home for half a day, maybe even longer than that before his servants caught up with him. <laughs> and what they shared blew him away. And he put his faith that moment in Jesus. Whenever Jesus did miracles, it was to create faith, to cement faith in people's lives. And that's what he did this day for this ruler. And then not just him, but his whole family was blown away by what just transpired. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. In chapter 5, it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, you'll notice a lot of John's content is placed right in Jerusalem. The Synoptic Gospels, most of it was in, it was in uh, Galilee, right, in the north and, and in the south. But, but most of John's, right, filling in for the stuff the Synoptic Gospels did not have, talked a ton about what was happening in Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Beseda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. 
And he said to them, do you want to be healed? This is a great question. A lot of Jesus's, most of Jesus's miracles came from someone who professed faith, right? Either them or their family member, in the last case, the dad, right? But it was somebody who had faith in Jesus. And he walks up to this guy who clearly didn't know who he was and said, do you want to be healed? Well, well, duh, that's why I come every day. I mean, that's why I've been here for 38 years. That's why I've been, and then he goes on, complains a little bit. And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, to, going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This guy had been there for 38 years. Jesus asked him if he wants to be healed. I don't know, thinking maybe he'd help him in, right? Throw him in the next time, you know, the water got stirred. And Jesus says, just get up and walk. I don't know if he felt a strengthening come into his body that gave him the courage to take the step up, but something, at some point, it, there's a say, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat, right? Something in him made him respond and try to get up. He hadn't been able to get up in years, 38 years. But he got up and he started walking and Jesus said, take my mat. Now you know why that was kind of a com- complicating thing? Because it was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to carry anything. It's considered working, right? And if somebody, like a Pharisee, catches you carrying a mat, he's going to yell at you, which is what happened. So it was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, no, 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 no. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, I was just healed today. I haven't been able to walk for 38 years. I was just healed today. Clearly, that must make an exception, right? In picking up your mat and going home. But they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. So there was a crowd in in the place. But, but isn't that an interesting thing? Again, the Pharisees were pastors of the day, right? They were intimately involved in the people's life. People looked to them, revered them as preachers of the word, of helping them develop the relationship with God. I mean, <laughs> and instead of being caught up with the healing, they're caught up with the rules. Hey, you came in the middle of service. You're not supposed to do that, right? At the beginning, that's when you're supposed to walk in. You can't come in the middle of service. Somehow they, they missed the fact that the guy came, right? They got so caught up in the rules that they missed the miracle. Maybe they had suspicions of who did the miracle and they were trying to come up with charges against Jesus. That could be too. But again, that's viewing life with a very strict paradigm of saying we want Jesus to be in trouble and we're going to view everything that comes from that as a result. It happens in churches too. Think of the last church conflict. Imagine we're having a huge conflict, red carpet versus green carpet, right? Just came up with the money to put new carpet down. We're so excited, but there's a huge war in the building committee. And then it comes out in the congregational committee and there's two sides that developed. Just very strong sides about which color carpet that they want. Well, in our world today, if you have a different view than me, then you must clearly be mistaken with your view, Right? And in fact, what we think is that there must something be wrong with you that you would actually want the other color carpet. Maybe even something sinister or evil about you that you would possibly even possibly think this way. Why do we do that? Well, because it gives us excuses to be sinful ourselves as we vilify, as we slander, as we mock the other side. 
all happen in church, right? Maybe if you've been part of it one for very long, right? And so even within the church, godly people can get so off-center, so lose their way that they exonerate, excuse, justify the most sinful of actions because somebody simply disagrees with them. We lost a member one time because we put chairs in the back of the sanctuary. Because we had so many people coming at that point that we needed the extra space. But it was something that they so hated, it inconvenienced them, it was so different that they couldn't tolerate it. They left the church. Not, oh my goodness, isn't it wonderful that people are coming to hear God's word? Isn't it wonderful that we have so many people cramming in here that they want to hear about Jesus, that God is doing extraordinary things? Not, what can we do to make them more comfortable? What can we do to facilitate what God is doing? But the chairs are in my way. We can lose sight so easily. And God says to keep the main thing, the main thing. So the Pharisees had lost that. Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. He was probably, most commentators believe he was worshiping God for being healed, which would make sense. He says, see that see you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus is trying to breathe in here a little understanding. Some commentators maybe believe that he became invalid because of a sinful path that he was taking. Some, just that Jesus was trying to build in why he came. Repent, right, was his message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and see me as one who is able to heal and to restore. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So the Pharisees, we know from the other Gospels, were jealous of Jesus. He did not give himself over to them, so they couldn't control Jesus. So they couldn't control him, and he was doing extraordinary things, and he was drawing clouds, and they were beginning to be jealous. And then he would do stuff that just infuriated them by doing things on the Sabbath, which was a clear violation of the rules, right? But he was doing such extraordinary things that people were coming to faith, they were, put, they were reinvesting in God. They were repenting in mass. All the things that they had been trying to accomplish for years. Jesus was doing it. He was transforming the community. It was powerful. It was amazing. But they didn't like him. <laughs> so they kept fixating on the things that they could say he was doing wrong. You're doing stuff on the Sabbath. It's not okay. Stop doing it. Do it the way we say And then he says stuff like this, my father is working until now and I am working. And it continues, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, already to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself an equal with God. Now sometimes you read the other gospels and you wonder, did Jesus ever fully, boldly claim to be the Messiah, except at the end, right in front of all the Sanhedrin? But today he's he's claimed it several times, right? With the lady, he says, I who speak to you am he. I'm talking about the Messiah. Clearly, is possible, could he say, I am the one you're waiting for. I am the Messiah. And they claimed him as the Savior of the world. He kept on saying, my father is working until now and I am working. He kept on making claims that he and the father were one. He kept on making himself equal to God. And even though it was skirting the issue right on the sides where they couldn't just nail him for saying that he was the Messiah, 
They knew what he was saying. They knew what he was claiming. They heard what he had done in Samaria, which infuriated them more. You have to understand they couldn't control him. He was creating a wave of excitement toward the Lord and toward himself as the Messiah. But for them, they just couldn't see him as the Messiah. It can't be him. He's not doing the things that we think he should be doing. And so they pursued him. And they'll keep on pursuing them until the end. Let us pray. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for tonight. And I just pray, Lord, that you would move in us a desire to to share with you with more and more people in our lives. Father, if this is true, and it is, right, we know that, that there's only two, one of two endings. There's one with you in heaven for our eternity, and there's one in hell with Satan where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's not even a close place, a close second. There's just one or the other. And Father, there's people in this world that we do love, that we do care about, People that have wandered from you or who do not know you, that are making their lives more difficult than they need to be, who aren't finding you as a God that can strengthen and help and to heal and to forgive. But maybe even more than that concern, Lord, we're just afraid we won't see them in heaven right now. And so I pray today that you give us opportunity, especially with them, to begin planting or to continue planting in a way that opens them up to be reaped at some point in the near future. Father, we want these people in heaven and we pray for them on a regular basis and so give us the courage to keep on trying, to keep on going. And Christmas is a great time because for whatever reason, people are more receptive to hearing and talking about you now than any other time in our year. And then, Father, just give us the strength and the words when those opportunities present and remind us that the reason we do this is because you are the Savior of the world, one that has forgiven us one who has wrapped us up in your arms of love, who walks with us as we go through life, who strengthens to face life's battles, and who gives us hope for a better tomorrow, a better future. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Never let us go. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.